Boom, 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 boom. I hope you have some vital signs today, and in this series, we're going to find out. Well, years ago, I heard the exciting stories of Juan Carlos Ortiz. He was a pastor in Buenos Aires, Argentina. When he went to the church there, it was about mm, 300 people, he said, but it soon began to grow in attendance, and he said, I was rather pleased as a pastor to be known as the pastor of one of the fastest-growing churches in Buenos Aires. But he said, I knew, I just knew there was something still missing in the church, and I began to pray about that and seek God for what that breakthrough might be. Well, one Sunday morning, he had prepared to preach on the text, 1 John chapter 4, dear friends, let us love one another. He said, I'd done my work well. I'd researched all the Greek words on love. I had my message meticulously prepared, ready to explain it all. But in the early part of the service that morning, I began to get this nudge from the Holy Spirit, and it made me nervous. Because the Holy Spirit was prompting me, don't preach this message today. He said, I panicked because the nudge was so strong. I'm sitting on the platform. The worship leader finishes the final song of the worship set. And he says, and now let's all get ready as Pastor Juan Carlos brings his message. And Ortiz said, I walked up to the pulpit and said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is, love one another. He stopped, closed his Bible, and slowly went back to his chair on the platform. This is one of those churches where the pastoral team all sat on the platform in chairs and kind of stared out at people. Well, as you can imagine, there was awkward silence. The people grew nervous, wondering what's going on here. Did somebody forget their cue? The worship leader turned to the pastor and said, do you, do, do you want us to do another song? And he didn't answer. He just sat there quietly. And he finally went back to the pulpit a second time and said, dear friends, my text this morning is love one another. Went back and sat down again. Silence. His wife was sitting in the balcony that morning, and she said, he said, she thought I'd flipped. I knew it would happen one day. All the pressure of ministry is going to get to the guy, and it's finally happening. He has lost it. He got up a third time, very awkwardly now, and repeated, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is love one another, went back and sat down. Well, about that moment, someone out of the congregation turns to a person next to him and says, well, is there any way I can practice that text and, and, and love you today? And then somebody else across the way began to talk, and then people began to go across the aisles, and the congregation was abuzz with people talking to one another and getting to know people they'd never met. Pastor uh, Ortiz said, we found out that morning that we had 28 people present who were unemployed. Every one of them went home with a job. We had single parents who were present who needed childcare and mentoring and help 
at home and connections were made to provide help for them that week. We had several families, he said, we were living in abject poverty. But because of those conversations, folks in the congregation were able to arrange to get help, food supplies to them that week. And he said, I could have preached my message on love. And on the way out, people would have shaken my hand and said, thank you, pastor. What a nice sermon. I never knew there were so many words, Greek words for love. We're so, you know so much. We're so blessed to have you as our preacher. But 28 people would have gone home still unemployed. And he said, to be brutally honest, most people in the church that morning probably didn't care too much about those needs. They just wanted a nice sermon. They wanted to hear truth, but not necessarily transformation. Just a nice sermon, thank you very much. He said, well, the next Sunday he got up after that strange Sunday before, and he said, it was time for the message. He said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is the same as last week. Love one another. He went back to his seat. People began to stand up and say, who can we help today? And he said, I kid you not, for three months straight, I had no freedom to go beyond that text, love one another. It's the only thing I got up and read. I had no liberty to preach. I just got up and said, my text today is the same as it was last week, the same as it was the week before, the same as it has been for the last three months, love one another. And he said, 300 people left the church during that time. They just couldn't take it. 300 people said, look, we employ you to get up there and talk. And all you've done is just say, love one another. We can't stand it. He said, I was glad they wanted to hear the truth, but I was kind of sad that they didn't want transformation. So after three months, Pastor Ortiz got up and said, brothers and sisters, the Lord has given me a new text this morning, and the congregation broke out in applause, literally began clapping. He said, my new text is, love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Silence. He said, some guy got up and left the building. I thought they were all probably going to bolt and just leave the church for good. But he said, no, they were going home. He said, my wife and our two daughters, uh, and we went home to our own home, parked our car, went down the street, knocked on a neighbor's door that we'd never met and said, is there anything we can do for you? He said, it was the worst time this could happen. It was two weeks before Christmas. We bought these Christmas gifts for each other. But we discovered that day that there were some people who needed them more than we did. And one Carlos Ortiz summed up that whole experience that God brought to the church in this way. He said, before that, we talked a lot about evangelism. We tried all kinds of different gimmicks and strategies and techniques about how to reach out and share the good news. But in our case, nothing worked. But he said, after God broke out in our church with love. We couldn't keep the people away. The phone began to ring. People began to show up at our doors because the word was out, this is the church that really loves people. 
starting a new series today I'm calling Vital Signs. For the whole month of June, we're going to explore some of those key indicators of spiritual health. Now, you guys know what vital signs are, right? When I go to my doctor and I do this particular part once a year, I have an annual physical. I hope you have some kind of checkup like that. She always checks my vital signs. These are the most basic functions of health. Now, there are a number of them, but the four main ones, the four primary ones that are always checked are things like body temperature, pulse rate, respiratory rate, and blood pressure. Numerous others, but these are the most common. Now, if those signs aren't good, it doesn't mean you're dead. It just means you're not all that healthy. It means you should take note. Hey, something's wrong here. This isn't as it should be or could be, and do something about it. Well, guess what? Healthy followers of Jesus also have vital signs. And throughout the month of June, we're gonna explore just a few of those that are super important. And the vital sign we look at today is Are you growing in love? That is, love for God and love for people. See, here's the deal. If you take the Bible seriously as your authority, as, by the way, that's a vital side of a healthy Christian, okay? If you do that, then it's obvious from just a cursory reading that love is a big deal in the Bible, And if we're not growing in love, something has gone desperately wrong with our Christianity. I I want you to consider just a few verses. We're going to show them here on the screen. That I I could have chosen many, many more. I just kind of hand-selected some of my favorite ones. Here's one, John 13. It says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people are going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Consider this one from John 15, verse 12. There are two here in close succession, verses 12 and 17. In this one, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then just a few words later, verse 17, he says, this is my command, love each other other. Jesus is being crystal clear with his disciples. Or how about this next one here? Uh, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So this is the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans. The message has gone from Jesus to his followers. And so Jesus put a premium on love and Certainly his followers were. Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. And get this part. For he or she who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Remember, Jesus gave Cliff's notes on the Bible and he said, hey, basically you can sum it up in this. Love God, love people. That's what all the law and the prophets were about. Or how about this one? What a pithy statement. Again, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, do everything 
everything in love. In other words, that should be your driving motive, motif, goal in everything you do. Love should be the thing that drives it. How about this one? The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. But let's look at a few more. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You're getting the message here. And again, we're, we're just selecting a few of them. These are a few that I really like. If you really keep the royal law, now what is the royal law? found in scripture. It's interesting, James, it's never called, James picks that phrase out. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he calls it the royal law. It's like the biggest one of all, the most important, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right if you do that. In other words, you've nailed it. You've got it if you understand that that is the greatest one of all. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Let's look at just two more here. These are some of my favorites. First John, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. In other words, you heard it at the beginning. It hasn't changed. It's not gonna change. If you're not loving one another, somewhere you missed the memo. You really missed what this is about and the major moral attribute God is looking, you missed it. And then finally, and this is his command, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Now, how does it strike you when you hear all of those verses together? It's obvious, isn't it? That God slowly, incrementally wants to shape us into people of love. That is clearly the goal. One of the people in history I greatly respect is William Wilberforce. Of Amazing Grace movie and story is incredible. A leader in the British governmental system championed this cause of the abolishment of the transatlantic slave trade. What a great Christian example he was. And he put it like this. He said, above all, measure your progress. In other words, how am I progressing as a Christian? Here's how you measure it. By your experience of the love of God and its exercise before men. According to Wilberforce, and more importantly, according to Jesus, our marching orders are to live a life of love. Again, Cliff's notes on the Bible, love God, love people. Obviously, love is a big deal. It's one of those vital signs that's an irrefutable mark of Christianity. So, so with all that, let's just pause here and get really personal. Because it's not about a nice sermon. It's not, it, it's not just about hearing truth, right? It's about transformation, Right? So if you did an honest inventory of your life, and boy, I've had a long time now to ponder this, how would you answer that question? Is there convincing evidence that you are growing in love? You know what I think? I think we can deceive ourselves because our hearts are 
deceitful above all else and beyond cure, according to Jeremiah, it's easy to convince ourselves that we're growing in this thing called love when actually we may be stagnant or even regressing. So how would we know? Well, I've written down my own definition. Uh, I've pondered this for literally decades now. This is my definition of what love is. See how you like it. To desire the best for another and, notice and is all caps because it's got to go beyond desire. I think a lot of times we fool ourselves by thinking, well, I, I, I want to see that person do okay, but we do nothing about, about it, even when it's within our power to act. So it's the and that's important. And be willing to act in a way that is consistent with their best interests and ultimate flourishing, especially when it is costly to you. Now, I know the definition is wordy, but I like it. I think there's quite a bit packed in there. And if you really ponder that definition for a moment, it becomes obvious right away that it takes wisdom to really love somebody, doesn't it? It's not always obvious what you should do because if you're truly desiring what's best for someone, sometimes that's hard to figure out. I mean, how do you love that child who's on illegal narcotics and keeps asking you for help to fund their habit? Oh, you, you're ripped apart, aren't you? You, you cry out to God. You, what do I do here? And you obviously don't want to fund their habit, but you see the enormous pain and addiction and you don't know what to do. Or how about that adult child who's living under your roof, eating food from your pantry, sleeping in a bed you've purchased, paying no rent, and living a complete life of debauchery and giving no respect to you whatsoever? What's your wisest course of action? Gets complex, doesn't it? Real quick. How about that coworker? Maybe you're the person's supervisor, but the person has a lousy attitude. How are you going to love that employee? You know they need the job desperately. People depend on them. So how do you love that coworker and help challenge them in love so they can move forward to flourishing? I'm telling you, that isn't always obvious. It takes wisdom to know how to love someone. Or here's one. How about that spouse who's grown apathetic and insensitive? Woo! This is one of the hardest ones of all, I think. And he still grows to work and earns a paycheck, but it's clear that he checked out of the marriage years ago until he wants intimacy. And then, oh, He's all lovey-dovey. How do you practice real love with a person like that? Do you confront? Do you, do you, do you wait? Is it, what does biblical love looks like? When does helping actually hurt? Because sometimes helping hurts. It doesn't help. It hurts. We bounce between the polarities of hard and soft love. We know 
that love sometimes needs to have a hard side to it. These rigid boundaries, this truth that is uncompromising. And you know what we call? We call that tough love. You need to practice tough love with that person. And it's right. But we also know that the Holy Spirit at times will prompt us to practice a love that is drenched in mercy and dripping with grace that gives third chances and seventh chances and 29th chances to a person. So how do you know the difference? How do you know when love should be tough and when it should be tender? How do you know in this particular situation, this particular time, whether it should be more tough or more tender, more leaning toward grace or more reliant on truth? Sometimes I think it helps to define something by defining what it is not. So I thought, I'm going to go down this road with you today and mention three things that we commonly mistake for growing in love. We commonly mistake these, especially, I think, in the church. One is an outward appearance of religiosity. In other words, if a person can quote some Bible verses and kind of plays the part of religion and goes to church every Sunday and looks really fine morally and kind of toes the line, isn't that person loving? Be careful with that. The Pharisees of Jesus' day proved that you can strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Jesus chided them in Matthew 23 when he said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, He said, you tithe a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the former. They looked real religious. But according to Jesus, they weren't real loving. They were towing the line on some things, but neglecting more important matters. As Jesus made clear, you can draw near to God with your lips, but your heart be far, far away from God. I don't want to sound mean or snippety, but I just want to say it. Maybe it'll be good therapy for me. Some of the most cruel and unloving people I've ever met are verse-quoting, Bible-toting, church-attending people who somehow missed the memo that if you ain't growing in love, something has gone wrong. May God help us to not be that. Another thing we commonly mistake for real love is superficial niceness. You know, a lot of people have the impression, I think, that to be a good Christian is just to be a nice person. Isn't that it? Isn't is that what God said? He just wants us to be nice people. Jesus ha- had an interesting encounter in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 15, verse 22. It says, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, 
have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Get this next phrase. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. I'm sure that Jesus didn't seem real nice at that moment. He did go on, by the way, to heal and help her daughter and get rid of the demon. He did. But I'll bet his initial response didn't seem very nice to those involved. See, real love is not just an exterior impression. It is an inside-out deal. It's not superficial. I like what the psalmist says, really rings true in Psalm 62. He says, with their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. You ever met a person who was really nice to you outwardly, smiled a lot, nice to your face, but you sense that inside they're cursing you? In the South where I come from, we're real good at that. We, we, we smile at people with a cheeky grin and go, well, bless your heart. Bless your heart. You know what that means? You know what that really means? Well, bless your heart. It means I'm being kind to you outside, but if you cross me, I'll stalk your children. <laughs> Love is more than superficial niceness. The third, third thing we commonly mistake for real love is always saying yes to any request. I mean, come on. If people are really loving, don't they have to always say yes to whatever you ask of them? Are you listening? Not at all. As humans, we often don't know what's best for us. So if we're wise as Christ followers, we can't always be saying yes to every request because sometimes, I'll say it again, sometimes helping hurts. The mother of James and John came to Jesus asking a favor of him. It's a really interesting passage. And she said, uh, Jesus said, what is it you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. I love Jesus' response. You don't know what you're asking. And hear me, in this case, he did not, N-O-T, did not grant the request. I'm sure that seemed to be a bit unloving to that mom. But love is not always saying yes to any request for a favor. Love has a proper sense of priorities. Several friends, guys I heard about, were out deer hunting, and they decided that just for support and safety and to maybe drag a deer out if they got one, that they'd go out hunting in pairs. And that evening, when they all returned, one hunter returned alone, and he was exhausted, having dragged out this eight-point buck all by himself. And the other hunter said, hey, man, where's Harry? The lone hunter said, well, he, Harry fainted a couple miles back helping me pull out the deer. They said, wait a minute, you left Harry back there all by himself and brought the deer instead? The guy said, yeah, it was a tough call, but I didn't think anyone would try to steal Harry. 
You know what I know about you? You've got tough decisions to make this week. And it really takes wisdom to know how to truly love a person. Hopefully, we won't botch it up as bad as that deer hunter did. Now, you may ask, now, pastor, come on. Why is this such a big deal? Why does God place such importance on the love factor as a vital sign? Answer, because his reputation is on the line. We, you, me, are supposed to be a good advertisement for God. The idea of Christianity is that his character and his moral attributes would be seen in us. There are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And most people are never going to read the first four. But they're they're looking at you. You you go to that church down there, don't you? you, Wait a minute, you're a Christian, right? I've heard you mention that. We're his advertisements. He wants his character and attributes to be seen in us. Remember Jesus made all those I am statements. I'm the vine, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the light of the world. But do you know also that Jesus turned to his disciples and made not I am statements, but you are statements. You are the salt of the earth, he said. You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. Jesus wants to transform us into people who truly and consistently love others because as people experience that through us, they're gonna have the truest sense of who God really is. We're like signposts, frankly, pointing to God. We're a little advertisement. This is a glimmer, just a taste of what God is like. Hope we get that. That's precisely, by the way, what Paul meant in these glorious ecclesiological passages in the book of Ephesians, where he said things like this in verse 10. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That means in you. God wants his manifold wisdom to be made known in you. Or how about verse 21? To him, that is to God, be the glory in the church. That's us. He wants his glory, his character and attributes to be seen in us. He wants love to break out in and among us. And if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will, that you are an advertisement for God. So, if we're not growing and progressing in love, frankly, we're guilty of false advertising. We are. We're just guilty of false advertising. He wants people to look at his kids, us, and say, wow, they're a chip off their old, the old block. Wow, look at her. Look at him. They look a whole lot like their father. 
can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? That's why this challenge of growing in love is so important. So here's the application as we wrap up today. To whom is God asking you to show love? In what way does God want you to show love this week? Now, the Holy Spirit's going to prompt you there. But, but, if you're feeling a little stuck, I would suggest that you maybe take a mental walk through 1 Corinthians 13, and it will be a prompter. And boy, the Holy Spirit will then go wild in your life. As you read phrases like, love is patient. Oh, to whom does God want me to show patience this week? Am I patient? Is that my MO? God is patient. He wants me to be a chip off the old block. Am I a patient person? Love is kind. Wow. To whom does God want me to be kind? Now, God is kind. His loving kindness endures forever. But he wants me to be a chip off the old block. Am I a kind person? Not superficial niceness. Am I genuinely and profoundly a kind person? So just let 1 Corinthians 13 be your prompt for how you might demonstrate love because growing in love is a vital sign of a growing disciple. May Jesus make us into people of profound love. Father, oh, you're so good. We don't want just truth. We want transformation. And I pray that love would break out. Break out. And that you would make us a people so healthy for your glory that these vital signs would be just tip-top shape. And Father, if we, see, if we see that one of these vital signs is a bit defective in us, would you give us the grace and humility to say, I'm gonna do something about that. And we would cry out to you for grace, for transformation in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.